This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 23rd, 2024. I'm Scott Lindeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have a jam-packed show tonight. It's the first week back of the BC legislature. We got a throne speech that sucked. We got a budget that was fine, but it's got more detail than the throne speech. Uh, and like a out of, well, not out of nowhere, but a squeezed in the middle there, kind of a controversial like decision not to proceed with some amendments. So We'll get into all of that. It's a BC-heavy episode today for the BC Politics Podcast. Support us, patreon.com slash politicoast. Before we get into all of that, the first thing that happened this week is David Eby had to fill out his cabinet. A few weeks ago, we talked about how Selena Robinson is no longer the Minister for Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills. Uh... So David Eby had to fill that seat, and he has given the role to Lisa Baer, the former Citizen Service Minister, to fill that position. George Chow gets to move up from Minister of State for Trade to Minister of Citizen Services. And I guess we don't have a new Minister of State for Trade, which kind of tells you how important that role was. Uh, but If it was important, they wouldn't have given it a Minister of State. It would be a full ministry. And like super newly minted MLA Ravi Parmar, who was one of the two elected in a recent by-election, is promoted to Parliamentary Secretary for International Credentials. Um, he gets to help. I believe he's helping Lisa Bear now on making sure we can help immigrants uh, work in their chosen field in this province. There's a lot of work to be done there. So Maybe it's just a matter of signaling. Maybe it's also some real work to be done. But it's quite interesting to see someone basically just get in and get a role right away, which almost makes you go, well, who who got passed over? And I had to look up the the size of the backbench of the BCNDP caucus right now. And of the 75, I believe it is, uh, MLAs they have, uh, only six don't have a role. <laughs> you have uh, Katrina Chen, who's retiring. Uh, and she had resigned from cabinet, citing personal reasons uh, a year or two ago. Selena Robinson also retiring and resigned very recently. Uh, Ginny Sims resigned from cabinet back in 2019 when she was under RCMP investigation that was later dropped. Uh, and she had also run for Surrey mayor and just hasn't found her way back into cabinet since. Uh, and then the other two, uh, three are Joan Phillip, who was elected in the by-election with Ravi Parmar. So super fresh MLA, as well as Mike Starchuk and Henry Yao, who are both elected in 2020. So basically, you're either on your way just in or just out, or you're Ginny Sims, if you don't have a seat in cabinet or some kind of special title. But who, you know, maybe they'll have a much bigger backbench after this fall's election, if all of the projections are correct. Or just a lot more parliamentary secretaries. Yeah, gotta have. I, I hand them out like candy on Halloween. I, I was looking up 
the titles and they change around a little bit, but at least at one point there was like a minister of state for forests and one for sustainable forestry and the ministry of actually we don't have a forestry ministry. I think it's merged into the land war stuff that Nathan Cullen gets to do with, but yeah, a lot of minister of states have very, uh, I mean, consider how Nathan Cullen's doing these days. It might not be the worst thing to break it out. Ooh, we'll come back to that. Let's, get into the throne speech i don't know why i watch this scott it i don't know why i watch them uh i was kind of curious who would give because you're a nerd yeah i was curious about the like procedural stuff beforehand and the prayers for work stuff um it was a rabbi from victoria for those who want to know he did acknowledge many of the ml many people present maybe non-theist i thought that was nice and ironic but the actual substance of the throne speech oh my god 30 pages of just patting themselves on the back was worse than usual i don't know that actually sounds pretty much par for the course for government at this point but there wasn't even there was like two specifics of what they'll actually do other than that it was things like action will be taken to protect renters from bad faith evictions and we will do more to help first-time homebuyers get on the home ownership ladder i don't know what either of those actions are i know what the latter one is and we'll talk about that in the budget but only because i've gotten that i'd like there's a lot of different ways people can be evicted. Are we bringing forward a bill? I don't know. We're going to find out. Yeah. On the other hand, why would you ever expect something significant to be first rolled out in throne speech? We chat about this uh, in the Slack, uh, in DMs. Uh, that basically there's what, like one or two things people can point to that have ever come out from a throne speech. One of them being the penny. That was just a memorable uh, one. But I do think it was more yeah, substantive like, of the time. It, it's so rare for there, something to be first rolled out in a throne speech because the person doing it is the lieutenant governor or the governor general. And why would you put an important announcement uh, in the mouth of a uh, non-elected, a political person when you could have someone from your government go out there and actually do the stuff yourself and get the actual photo op and the announcement and everything just from the art of politics it doesn't make sense to put stuff in a throne speech can we just abolish uh, them then because like seriously they ha- they do still have to debate and spend a significant a amount of vote and, thing. Like, and have I a think com- but we could just have a just confidence vote we could just have the confidence vote we don't need to have like the debate over the substance of this because what does that even mean you know, like it's a confidence <laughs> vote on the basically the direction of the legislative sitting i mean yeah it's one of these things that could be an email but i don't know there's there's something to be said for the uh the ceremony and the uh the theater of politics being important too i'll say this christy clark's 2017 throne speech when she had the minority uh that was an interesting throne speech because that was not her throne speech that was the one she wanted the greens to vote for so she put everything they proposed in there and it was very funny yeah, it's they they definitely do have a role for first votes after the election, particularly when in a minority situation. Uh back to the, what little substance there is, there's a half dozen actual points that kind of point to something in here. On healthcare, they're going oh, I should say just on housing. The only other thing they talk about is BC builds. And in this case, they liken it to victory homes that were built post World War Two which was an analogy I hadn't heard them bring up before. Uh I thought it was interesting because I saw a video that Federal Housing Minister uh, Fraser put out a few months back on Victory Homes. So, I mean, if anything, the um, 
the thing that more mirrors the victory homes is those um like pre-approved plans they're working on for a bunch of like the the gentle density stuff like those kind of more fit the mold of hey here's something you can just mass produce quickly um, sorry, like the victory homes yeah uh, also victory homes is just better branding than bc builds except we're not post-war so what it's victory over what covid because we we didn't really win <laughs> no it, it's victory over the housing crisis it's putting your cart before your horse there the healthcare promises are to continue to attract train and retain uh doctors and nurses invest in uh long-term care and build on the 10-year cancer plan that all basically comes in the budget and we'll talk about it there affordability is super vague but they are going to do more to help small and growing businesses i think the primary thing that's probably the uh we'll get to this in the budget but i think that was probably their um announcement on um the employer health tax the employer health tax yeah that's the one that's probably all they're doing there uh they have promised for the environment new actions to reduce carbon pollution from big industrial emitters uh possibly caps possibly taxes it's unclear uh they are also going to take steps to better recognize and support first nations mandated post-secondary institutes as a key pillar of bc's advanced education system uh, and then the specific promises we got are two bills, one of anti-racism legislation, and that one I know has been teased for a while and they've been working on it. Uh, and the surprise one of this was legislation to ban disruptive protests outside schools modeled on their banning disruptive protests outside hospitals bill. So I, and I thought even when that bill came in, they could have just like added schools in regulations, but I guess... They're going to just like put it in the text of the bill to make it very clear. I'm glad we got more than the throne speech to talk about this week, though, because the budget dropped on It'd Thursday. A very short episode otherwise. Yeah. So the big headline of this budget is it's a spendy budget without being a clearly uh, specific what they're spending it on. Uh, the deficit is up to $7.9 Last year, they peg it at $5.9 They are showing over the course of the three-year fiscal plan to reduce that deficit down to 6.3 billion but uh it's still we're still going to see the debt to gdp ratio go from 21 percent in this budget to 27 and a half percent by the end of this three-year cycle all i did double check what a good debt to gdp ratio is and they're usually based on like america or like national governments and so like if it's below 60 you're probably fine 60%. Yeah, but also national governments have a lot more leeway on what they can do. Stuff yeah. in large part because they control the currency and stuff. And just to put this in perspective, it was around 15-16% when they took office and now it's going to be climbing up to 27%. So nearly doubling over the course of the government. Yeah, it's in a range that is not too concerning, but the trend line is very much going in a bad direction on this, and you know they're taking advantage of the good books they inherited, but that that can only be spent down for so long. Yeah, and particularly in a high interest environment, and like that's where I think this is really going to come into focus because 
I think we all got pretty used to the uh, post-2008 very low interest rate environments where it was effectively free for governments to borrow money. It was kind of a deficits didn't matter uh, view that eventually kind of beat, took over policies and became the common wisdom. And the situation that led to those uh, developments and that kind of conventional wisdom emerging is no longer the case. We actually live in a time now where borrowing does cost money. There's real uh, costs that associate with this, and it's the case. We actually really do need to make sure that every bit of borrowing is worth it because it will eventually come back to bite us. Honestly, looking at just the top line numbers, I think the bigger issue they're struggling with rather than spending is the econ like growing the economy like with the high interest rates they point that bc's kind of struggling they're only predicting growth to be 0.8% this year uh following 1% last year is that real or nominal uh, i don't know uh <laughs> but they're only <laughs> that's a very important di differentiation it to grow to 2.3 in the next few years so uh let me figure that out real nominal is at 3.3 Okay, so they're only expecting a real GDP growth of 0.8% this year following a 1% growth last year, and that will grow to 2.3% in 2025. But, you know, that's... And on a per capita basis, that's flat or potentially negative. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges we're facing, right? Even if we're reducing our deficit, the denominator of the debt to GDP is starting to get smaller, <laughs> And that hurts us it's a not lot. Getting bigger, yeah, uh, which is what you usually want to do, right? If you grow your GDP, it doesn't matter what your deficit is because you can keep that debt to GDP ratio fairly constant and fairly safe. It's not like you know other provinces aren't also facing these challenges. It is a very difficult time, and so I don't you know, blame the policies of any one government on this, but the does create a challenging situation that you know doesn't put David E.P. at risk I think for this fall's election but it starts to raise flags about what they need to focus on over the next few years do how do we get new revenue how do we get the economy going again and keep this province afloat not that we're at risk of going under but you know you want to stay you want to stay on the good right, side so trend, trend lines that are in the right direction a lot of this stuff so there are new investments across the board on this, lots of new spending. But as I dug into it, a lot of the spending is basically keeping up with inflation and population growth, which has been significant. So there are some new measures. There is going to be uh, some let's give everybody money measures. In this case, there is a one-year BC family benefit bonus. This is going to cost $248 million dollars to give about $445 to the 340,000 low and middle income families. Uh, and it varies exactly how much people will get based on how many kids or spouses they have. I think they only count you for one spouse. We don't recognize polyamory yet. There's also going to be a BC electricity affordability credit of about $100 for every hydro customer, I guess, with commercial and industrial customers also getting uh 4.6% discount on their hydro bills this year. This really is a government that loves, uh, you could uncharitably call it bribing the voters with their own money. 
on this, or I guess it's this we're running a deficit. It is more uh, bribing the voters with their children's money. Uh, but it, it sure has been a staple. And I suppose it's just good that this isn't, this is on the smaller end of that compared to some of the previous uh, rounds of it. Yeah, but, it's not a thousand to every house or yeah, a thousand every household, 500 every single. Um, notably, uh, I believe, I don't have the number right in front of me, but I believe BC Hydro is quite solvent. So, and showing a surplus yeah, like, so at least that money is more like just you know taking their surplus back to you not so directly as the, but- the the sole shareholder of dc hydro like it's it's ultimately all one pot of money for sure no matter how what label you slap on it so yeah that okay. that just means they're returning less to the government this year uh as mentioned on supporting the small business is front the employer health tax this was the how are we going to pay for the MSP? Let's get an expert panel to figure out the best way to do it and then make a decision before they've even reported back with a payroll tax. Uh, that payroll tax is now only going to apply to businesses with payroll over 1 million rather than just 500,000. Uh, they estimate 90% of businesses will now be exempt and those who have payrolls between 1 and 1.5 and million will get a uh, sliding scale partial exemption. So. Welcome news for admitting they got the uh, the calibration wrong when they uh, rolled that out originally. I I don't know. I wonder if this is more one of the efforts to try to stimulate the economy a little bit and try to get that economy growing. I think it may have been fine a few years ago, but the struggle of COVID has made it more urgent to try to find ways to support many of the smaller businesses that have had had a rough few years. Well, maybe they did get I it. Know. They, they were, there were there were complaints about it at the time, too. This isn't just like a new thing that has emerged post-COVID. Housing details. We do have some new policies on the housing front. Uh, BC Builds, the program that was just announced with $2 billion of old money and $950 million of new money, is getting another $198 million over three years. To support it, 150 million of that will go to operations and 48 million dollars for capital funding. I guess we need BC Builds to build its cap its offices, or maybe they're investing that 48 million and actually building homes. Either way, probably offices. 48 million doesn't go all that far. No. Uh, notably, just before the budget came out as well, Justin Trudeau was in town. Actually, this was just before the throne speech because David Eby had to fly from Vancouver to Victoria to be at the throne speech after this announcement uh, that the federal government is putting up $2 billion of its money uh, to also be used for repay for loans and incentives for more BC builds. So now there's $4 billion in cash available to incentivize affordable or middle income homes. You know, the, as long as you're in the 75th percentile or less, which is good. That's a lot of money now. Yeah. And there's actually some, yeah, new money too in this, not just slapping a new coat of paint over an old program. And that was basically it on the supply side. The demand side, we're going to see a new home flipping tax come in as of January 1st, 2025. This will be a 20% tax applied to the income from the sale of a property sold within one year. And it's I, basically a, ca- a capital gains tax. Yeah. 
Um, if you sell between one and two years, it's a sliding scale. So if you sell it like 18 months, you get a 50, uh, 10% tax uh, and so forth. You will be able to exempt yourself from the tax if there is some justifiable reason why you had to sell fast, like you got divorced, you died, uh, you had to move for work or lost your job, personal safety, uh, insolvency, uh, as well, if you are adding to the housing supply or engaging in construction or real estate development, you can be exempt from this. So if you buy a lot, tear it down and put up for, you know, a multiplex, I guess you can sell those right away and not get the flipping tax, which seems reasonable. Yeah. Well, you, you don't want it basically be a tax on development. We have yeah. far too many of those. Um, Although if you can, that's- if you can flip a single family home to a four unit or better multiplex in, you know, a year or two. Good on you. Actually, I believe the exemption is if you just add one new unit, uh, mm. now service exempt. So, you know, put a bait, you know, put a locking door to the basement and you've got, you're probably good. Oh, <laughs> as a base, make it a basement suite. As someone who can do that. Although I've owned <laughs> this house for more than two years. Uh, yeah. Well, like it's, this isn't the sort of thing that's going to be a huge deal. I mean, ultimately, all of this stuff, whether it's house flipping or anything else, is downstream of the fact that there just isn't enough housing. And there is also some housing that is in not great shape and could use a facelift. Uh, and I don't know, it doesn't seem unreasonable for someone to, uh, you know, do the, do the work, put up the, the money to, to do the renovations and, uh, get a little uh, return for the work they have put in. Like, Because keep in mind, there is already federal capital gains taxes on uh, the sale of non-primary residence real estate in the country. It's not like this was an un- previously untaxed activity. So like, there are spots where probably on net actually does improve the quality of the housing stock, even if it does also come with a corresponding price change to reflect that quality. And it's not, wasn't an untaxed activity anyway. So it's also just, there aren't that many house flippers in general. It's not a big driver of real estate activity. So this really more streams like a government that is, trying to find an activity that is or a group of people that are not particularly well liked by the general public and be seen to go after them more than anything that is going to functionally change the nature of the housing market in bc yeah the federal government did in 2023 or they brought it in in budget 2022 for 2023 a residential property flipping rule that basically uh treats the capital gains as a business income. So it's already being taxed as that as well, or should be. Um, so now it just gets doubly taxed and VC gets to skim a bit too. Uh, the budget estimates they'll get $44 million from this in the first year. It's not a ton of money given that the property transfer tax, you've looked it up, pulls about $2 billion, uh, 2.5 in a good year, uh, dollars in revenue which is significantly more than 40 million. So, uh, yeah. And also you, you might catch a few people on the first year, uh, 
on this. After that, you'd expect people to adjust, and at that point, they'll slow down and do their renovations a little bit more thoroughly than some of the shitty home design shows that I've definitely seen them just do. Yeah, or or you'll catch people who like have to sell for some life reason that isn't captured in one of the uh, the exemptions they've put in. It's yeah, not, not likely to be much of a revenue generator, not likely to change the nature of the market. It, it really seems to be more stunt tats than anything else. I'm fine with it. I don't hate it. I know it's not going to do much, but fine. Uh, it would make Talib Nur Muhammad's life a little bit worse if he were still flipping homes. So the final thing on the housing file is something we talked about from the BC United platform a couple uh, last week, I think it was. We are now increasing the first time buyer threshold from $500,000 to $835,000. They kind of split the difference with the million that Kevin Falcon proposed. So if, you know, if you're buying a house between 835 and a million and it's your first home, you sh- I guess you support BC United over <laughs> The BCNDP's only like modest increase in threshold. Yeah, all 12 people that that will apply to. Uh, they are also expanding the exemption for the newly built home uh, exemption from 750000 to $1.1 So you don't have to pay your property. And that's really what we needed is to uh, exempt people buying million dollar assets from... Uh taxes uh i think the better one of the three in here is the final one the uh new purpose built rentals uh of four units or more will be exempt from the property transfer tax for the next few years going on to 2030 uh this is something that existed and it looked like it was just set to expire so they've just continued that because let's not overtax new rentals when we desperately need them we've solved housing now scott Oh, well, like I said last week when we were talking about housing, I mean, most of the heavy lifting was done in the fall session with the uh, the big collection of zoning change bills that brought, brought forward. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the thing that if housing does get more affordable, that's going to be what does it. And tinkering around with tax rates is, is not going to do it, really. The next set of investments in this budget or uh, spending is the public services, strengthening the services people rely on. All the sections in this budget have annoying titles like every budget you see these days. This is $8 billion in total spending over three years, six of that for health, about a billion for education, $400 million for justice and public safety. A big chunk of that is actually going to increasing the salaries of judges uh, and other people who are in the justice system who've been, I think, underpaid for a little bit. And then $600 million. I mean, is the bigger problem with the, that we don't have enough judges rather than the pay scale for judges? Is I think there's been some disputes over pay for recently. I don't have the news in front of me, but I recall that. And I know they've negotiated some new settlements, right, I believe. Like, so. we, we have a big problem yeah, we definitely with need cases more not going through the, the system quick enough. Um, and you know, criminal cases having to get tossed for that reason and whatnot. And it, judge output is not going to scale with compensation. It's going to be a case you would actually need more people to do it because you can't judge twice as quickly by paying tw- the judges twice as much 
Yeah. So they are putting uh, a bunch of money into uh, various support programs. Uh, they're also helping expand some early resolution and legal aid services uh, to try to get people, especially with family law cases going through mediation rather than the courts to simplify some of that. Um, they're also putting up some money into red light cameras. So 140 of them. Yeah. Uh, and $600 million in the service spending is going to help for people who need care and support. This is children and youth in care, people on income disability assistance, community living BC. Uh, so that spending, the education spending, and a lot of the health spending is actually just like meeting growth as far as i can tell like the health spending is a six percent annual increase it works out to in the budget for health care which uh, the population is not growing at six percent no so there is some new spending in health a little sure. yeah uh, um but I don't know. part of what my problem with this is you know we're doing the same thing we've always done with healthcare, which is whenever there's a problem just throw more money at it and this is, I pulled up the uh, last budget of the previous government and accounting for inflation, there's basically a 42% increase, nearly $10 billion more we're spending now. We're adding another bunch more onto it in the coming years. And I don't know, is, is healthcare better than it was back then? It's, it's hard to say. It's on ground. We've had some pretty disruptive stuff happened. It was a little pandemic that required an obscene amount of healthcare minor funding. Thing. Yeah. So like, <laughs> not an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. But that was also, you know, we're not at the same ongoing uh, crisis that it, it was at the time. Um, well, notably there's in this budget alone, 3 billion for ongoing pandemic issues. Uh, that's money for vaccines, PPE, testing, monitoring, and staffing remote, wrote and, staffing rural and remote emergency care. So, I mean, that last one still, reads more like they're grouping the, the problems they've had keeping rural hospitals open as a pandemic thing, which is, yeah, it's partly related to it. But, you know, you, you could also easily break that out into its own category. Fair enough. Uh, on that. And wait. Costs are going up at an unsustainable rate here, and I, there seems to be very little, or not enough, is going to actually figuring out how we get healthcare spending on a sustainable track. And yeah, you know, that's a complicated thing. But there, there's really that every province is facing. Yeah. Oh, it's not a unique to BC problem, but just because it's not unique to mm -hmm. us doesn't make it any less of a problem. And. You know, having healthcare consume increasingly large amounts of uh, provincial budgets is not ideal when we have so many other areas, such as you know, transportation infrastructure, housing, all of that stuff that also really could use a lot more investment. One of the and like I said, it's not even clear we're getting good value for it because the the system's in arguably a much rougher state than it is that it was several years ago. One of the things they have done, and it was mentioned in the throne speech and again in the budget, is their changes to the pay of family doctors does seem to be working. It's, they are bragging about the over 700 doctors who have joined general practice in the past uh, year or so since they brought that change in, which is 
really good. <laughs> it's like one of those things that I wasn't sure how well it would work out. It seemed promising. Uh, I haven't looked at how much more it costs versus. So was it in effect a throw money at the problem, but just change the formula as well? Um, but that does suggest some of it is coming under control. There's still so much more to address. Um, and dev graphs are not good. On no, we have an older province. Like, yeah, well, every pro province is aging. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have Alberta's. Still not great, but better demographics. Well, one thing that might help that, Scott, is we're going to start covering in vitro fertilization one round starting in April 1st, 2025. Uh, good. Like the the value of just like the economic uh, output of an additional person uh, is fairly significant. So, yeah, if this increases birth rates a bit, that's could be money well spent for sure yeah and it's only going to cost 68 million dollars uh, i did find some reporting from uh, what was it in fertility awareness week last year that bc is one of only three provinces that doesn't have any program prior to this on ivf uh, most provinces just have a grant or a tax credit that you get in newfoundland i think and labrador fund you to go to another province to do it uh, and ontario and quebec just straight fund one round and that's what BC is going to do now, because I think that's just the simplest rather than being like, you can deduct 80% of the cost of this on your taxes. It's like, just just pay for the treatment. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, well, I guess it's on them the second time if they want to keep going. But uh, yeah, I think that's one that's going to be pretty widely um, cheered on. It's like you say, it makes sense economically. It makes sense from just like a supporting families position. And it's not that expensive. It's kind of like the universal contraceptive coverage that they rolled out a year or two ago. Except it's going to have the opposite effect. Exactly. It's about supporting choice. It's hard to argue with that, I think. Um, yeah. And then the rest of the healthcare funding, $2 billion for just like capacity increases over the three years, $270 million for the Cancer Action Plan, uh, $350 million for uh, senior care, and then $215 million for addictions treatment spread across, you know, more beds, more harm reduction initiative support, uh, and some money for peer-assisted care teams. And then there was like $100 million set aside or something like, no, sorry. And then there was some money set aside for further policy development on the issue, which we've declared toxic drug overdoses a crisis and we still need to spend money on policy development it, like i get we haven't solved it yet but i all right fine then yeah i guess you still have to spend money to figure out what to do so it's only been what eight nine years yeah it's bad seven people a day uh education funding like i said is a billion dollars uh a chunk of that is going to the like classroom enhancement fund but the rest is just like topping up uh, to meet expected increases in demand uh, and enrollment because our education is largely funded uh, per student. So more students cost more money. Next section of the budget, stronger, cleaner economy, just lumping everything else in <laughs> to the last category in terms of new spending. Uh, 228 million over three years for the future ready initiatives. These are kind of the 
training and post-secondary education stuff. So doubling student loan maximums, reducing student repayment obligations. $1.3 billion was set aside for climate change resiliency. Uh, I couldn't, I didn't see where the big chunk of that was going. Some of it's going to continue the Clean BC grants for the next three years. Uh, these are grants to municipalities to do active transportation infrastructure, uh, grants to people putting in heat pumps or EV infrastructure, as well as putting in EV infrastructure across the province. Um, $150 million for wildfire response over three years, including money for year-round wildfire response. So they're stealing another plank from the BC United. I, I actually couldn't tell if this meant year-round like firefighting service like they were talking about, or if it's just, I think it is. Yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah, uh, and $250 million over four years to respond to future climate emergencies. And there was a bunch of smaller projects labeled like dike enhancements in that, I believe. Uh, they note that the carbon tax is going up by $15 per ton. That's just what it goes up by now. And that will boost the climate action tax credit from $447 per adult to 504 So another chunk of change for, well, another 30 bucks for everyone this year and and uh 24 million dollars for continuing our critical mineral strategy work i put that one in there for you hey, it's good it's it's not, not much a money. huge amount of money yeah and you know having a strategy is one thing but actually executing on it seems to be the uh the much more important thing and that's not clear if that's going to be uh coming out of that or if that's just more planning uh, it's basically going to ensure adequate resources for regional and major mines permitting uh, and to support the Mineral Tenure Act reforms in collaboration with First Nations. So it's helping smooth permitting for mines, uh, as well as doing consultations to redo the Mine Act, which hopefully will go more smooth than the Land Act that we'll talk about fairly soon. <laughs> Capital investments, we're spending $43 billion over the next three years on building things. Uh, most of the things we're building, $15 billion is going into transportation, and most of the projects they list are highways and roads, notably Highway 1, Massey Tunnel, a bunch of smaller bridging projects. Uh, but prominent Stephen Dubot will be so sad. Yeah. <sighs> hey, he said the federal government's not going to spend on this. It's up to the province. Uh, and also, of course, the two SkyTrain extensions. There's no new TransLink money in this budget that I could find at all. TransLink, I don't even think, comes up in the budget. But BC Transit does. So you non-mainland, lower mainland listeners, you're in luck. BC Transit's getting $250 million over three years to expand its infrastructure, new places to house buses. They're going to buy zero-emission vehicle buses. They're going to increase depot and passenger capacity. Oh, I forgot to say on the house on the education money, there's a little bit of capital money in there to buy uh, ZEV school buses, which I thought was yeah. fun. But notably, no capital money to uh, build the Olympic Village school. No, but there's a lot of capital money that's not accounted for in here. There's a lot of projects just not mentioned. They just put dollars in bank accounts and they can announce those later which seems like is going to happen for that because we just saw in the Slack people being like, yeah, it sounds like in the next two weeks they're going to announce 
the Olympic Village School. Right. Maybe we'll see. They did a big announcement as part of the uh, the last campaign that they were going to do it, and then you know, we're now coming up on the next campaign, and it hasn't uh, come on. So one might be a cynic and say they're uh, trying to turn this into a perpetual campaign issue. <laughs> don't don't raise kids in Olympic Village. <laughs> Uh, BC Transit's also getting $28 million over three years to increase its service by 14.5% by the end of that. So just more buses everywhere running. Uh, and notably, they're also getting another $26 million in just operating funding just to support operations. Just good job, BC Transit. Here's $50 million. Use half of it to increase services. Use the other half to just keep being great. I hope people like BC Transit because they're getting money here that TransLink's not. And I'm not bitter about that, but I mean, like... I'm going to guess there'll be a bunch of TransLink announcements in the lead up to the election. Yep. Uh, there's also some money for inland ferries, but only like $60 million. Uh, there's uh, $13 billion in health facilities. Those have basically all been announced previously, I think. Uh, $4.2 billion for schools, $6 billion for post-secondary education. That one... Uh, had some big projects at most of the universities. Um, nothing stood out to me as too new. Um, two and a half billion or 2.4 billion for housing, but that's still like largely stuff that's been announced. And 1.8 billion in ministry capital spending, which is also stuff that's been announced, like the Nanaimo Correctional Center rebuild and the Royal BC Museum's Collections and Research Building, which cost $270 million that they had announced and had started moving ahead with a year ago, they're not doing the other $600 million or whatever it was going to cost for the full museum building itself yet. So yeah. They're probably going to wait a while on that one. Yeah. Or make it the next government's problem. Wait until it falls down and then get blamed for it. Look, Vancouver hasn't replaced the aquatic center yet, and pieces are falling off of that. So shows you how long you can put aside investments in cultural and leisure activities. Oh, yeah. it's This can can be kicked quite far down the road. I, I actually think there's a way they could relaunch that, but they would have to actually do a much better job of rolling stuff out on that. But yeah, it's absolutely doable. They just actually need to decide they want to do it so overall we have here a budget that increases spending to meet demand doesn't solve core fiscal challenges and kind of sets a trajectory that's yellow light uh at the same time we have an election coming up this year and you know this isn't a big shiny we're buying your votes with a whole bunch of shiny new things kind of budget this is a look, we're going to just it's, keep doing what we're doing. It, it's very much a stay-the-course budget, and you know that's going to be, I think, their message for the election is, hey, why not a strong, stable NDP majority government? Now's not the time to rock the boat. And with the state of the opposition, that's probably going to work out fairly well. Um, that said, yeah, I don't think this was a win for them politically. Most of the headlines and discussion I saw were talking about the uh, largest uh, deficit in DC history. So not, far. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see about next year. Why don't that be there? with with inflation? There's always going to be a bigger one eventually. It just won't mean as eventually. Much. But like we've definitely had cases where the the deficit has gone down, not up year over year. Yeah, um, and in a strong economy, that that should definitely be doable. We don't have. Um, so yeah, they got negative headlines out of that, and they didn't have a and this is buying blank to follow that that would have actually helped sell the budget so yeah right i i don't think the deficit's gonna hurt them too much and if frankly if you have the deficit as your top issue you're already voting uh bc united but outside of you know those few dozen people it's not gonna be an immediate vote loser but they didn't win anything here either with this yeah they they don't like excite the base because there's not like new spending to really say you know here's our priorities there's no cuts so there's no like making the base mad but there's still that like i know there's lingering frustrations out there i know teachers are frustrated that like a lot of districts are struggling with capacity issues my partner's a teacher and she's like we need another high school in burnaby because already like they have more portables than there are schools at some points like <laughs> yeah say nothing of surrey yeah, yeah and surrey's the same like most cities are in this situation so we can't keep up and especially as we're building more homes for the more people who are coming here there's definitely a need for more schools and then people to work those schools yeah but they, like the and that costs money right so yeah so there's things like that and yeah, they're putting a little more into, uh, well, but the, yeah, there wasn't a, um, there wasn't a single headline takeaway on this. So there was the IVF stuff, but it's not, that's, that's not big that's, enough and doesn't affect enough. It, it's yeah. not a huge span. It doesn't affect enough people. Um, it gets some goodwill, but it's, yeah. Yeah. It gets some goodwill, but like, if you're not in a couple looking to have a child, it doesn't really do anything for you. To be clear, um, they are covering, uh, individuals and people in same sex they've made they had some language about like any number of people or you know but yeah right. primarily it's going to be couples yeah the the wants to be a parent in the next couple years cohort mm-hmm. um on that it's yes well there, there needed to be a hook on this budget and there wasn't a hook so the deficit became the hook and you know it's a it's a truism that uh, budgets are communications documents, and this didn't really communicate anything. Communicated that they're happy doing exactly what they're doing, and they will keep on doing it. It's not an exciting round, but yeah, that's basically it. I will say this though: I think the Horgan budgets had a, a clearer through line to them. I was telling you, like I. I'm pretty sure I've said it on the podcast before. They should have put a hundred billion dollars into housing construction, and that would have the entire some headlines. It's only like eighty billion. Fine, ten billion. Yeah, that, into that would have definitely housing, yeah, right? like, caught some caught some eyes. Like you know how we just announced BC builds? Well, we're making it five times bigger. It would have made some confused looks as to like why did you announce this thing and then change it? But, oh, we didn't mention the. Um... Renters' rebates finally coming through in this budget. That that was in the last budget, so it is being funded in this one. So it's yeah. not a new thing. 
But yes, you're right. Was some move forward on that in this one. <laughs> it didn't get cut in this budget, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, I think the first chats are going out after this one. The other bit of provincial news, and we've teased it a couple times, that was dropped, I think purposefully, between the throne speech and the budget, like the one day, uh, was that Nathan Cullen is uh, walking back plans to amend the Land Act and is going to revisit how this is being approached. Uh, Before we get into that, has there been like a politician that's had like as big a fall from like star candidate status and like well-respected MP to guy that always seems to be causing trouble for his government every time he's in the news than Nathan Cullen? It's it's hard to think of one off the top of my head. You know, he was considered such a get. um, And then there was the problem with the nomination. I don't know. I think it just goes to show that being a a good third-party opposition MP does not a good minister make. Yeah. Um, Hard to say exactly where things went wrong in this situation. So the Land Act is the piece of legislation that sets out how crown land, the territory, the land that is owned by the province of BC is managed and governed. It's in dire need of an update following a string of Supreme Court rulings that have clarified uh, what Aboriginal title means to the unceded territories, especially that most of this land represents. And so there's some need to bring it into alignment with those for clarity so there doesn't have to be a court case every time there is a permit, as well as the government's own commitment to undrip and reconciliation means I think they have an active desire to do this right and to bring forward some better processes, right? It's better for everyone if we have a nice, clear process that First Nations agree with, that the government has passed, and that sets out, all right, you want to open a mine, you want to cut some trees down, you want to build a road through this section of crown land, here is the steps you go through. It's clear and manageable. We don't have that right now. Clear (laughs) clear processes are in general good, which kind of makes it a wonder that uh, the process they chose to get that clear process was itself not very clear and turned out to be a fairly bad process in the end. Yeah, I wasn't following it that closely, but I think the yeah, this kind of all boiled up. Well, you know, I was dealing with the death of the family and everything, and like not really paying attention uh, to things. So I was planning on circling back and, and you know, read up on it, following this stuff, and in preparation for the show here, and even kind of going through that. It was not clear, even with hindsight, necessarily how this all rolled out, what the process was, and everything. Yeah, yeah it was kind of, there were some for sure. So to there were some go go back to the start of this. Uh, you laid out kind of why they wanted to do it. Um, so they so that's kind of the why, and then ministry for uh, water, land, and resource stewardship. I like land wars better as an acronym. Uh, Just going to keep calling it that. Yeah, <laughs> that's how the podcast. That's the official podcast style guide on that. Uh, not going to be changing anytime soon. Uh, they very quietly started doing consultations on this, but not so quietly that uh, it didn't escape the notice of uh, a couple reporters, the opposition. Uh, 
But there was no press release on this. There was no announcement, really, that this was rolling out. It just started happening quietly with the stakeholders the government had selected. And, well, that uh, that silence created a vacuum that uh, pretty rapidly got filled by both uh, media going, huh, what's going on here? There's a whole bunch of unanswered questions on this. Uh, end of January, Von Palmer had a uh, piece in the sun uh, where he talked to a couple uh, experts in uh, indigenous law, and basically the last half of the column is, here's a bunch of unanswered questions about how this whole thing could roll out. Uh, the opposition parties pretty quickly um, latched on to the fact that this was applying to the use of Crown land, you know, land that is in theory and that most Canadian or that I think most British Columbians see as like the common heritage of British Columbians and kind of held for all of our benefits on that. And that there were changes being done that were not clear what they were and the government was not forthcoming on it. So there was, I don't, an assumption of if not bad faith, definitely a case of the silence is part of the problem on that and that the uh, the opposition parties definitely ran with it, but they also ran with it because of how it was rolled out. Like They were probably never going to be entirely supportive of it because, you know, it's what opposition's over there for. They're, they're there to uh, poke at and criticize policy, even good, well-meaning policy to kind of find the flaws in it. And when that's not proactively addressed, it uh, doesn't always play out well. Indeed. So following the secret consultations of January becoming public, there were calls from BC United and BC Conservatives to scrap these plans. Uh, Kevin Falcon and the BC United announced their own proposal for a public land registration system, they would introduce a public land act that would change it from crown land to public land, which honestly, taking the word crown out of there, I'm fine with that. That's probably the best idea in there. And then they have more of a, oh, what do they frame it as? Uh, they have a framework for transparent and timely decision making. They're both good. And they want to have, yeah, yeah. No one's really ever against either of those things. And they want an Indigenous loan guarantee program for First Nations to have equity ownership and participation in natural resource projects that happen, I guess, on this public land, which I saw Adam Olson say, that's kind of interesting, but it's not also the same thing as recognizing title over the land which the courts have acknowledged exists. Uh, and more troublingly, as Falcon leaned into the language of the NDP's proposals, which as far as I know, don't actually exist. Like I think the charitable read is that Cullen wanted to like have some initial preliminary conversations with chiefs, with some industry groups, and to try to suss out what the challenges were going to be before he did a very big public consultation. Of course, we can see it didn't work, right? I, like I get maybe how he fell into this trap, but he should have seen that this was coming because fights over land is the history of this province. And people get very passionate about this. 
That's basically so, the history of humanity. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. like no, no one, just anything about human nature and human history should should tell you this is going to be a uh, controversial uh, thing for sure. And particularly in kind of the current zeitgeist, that is, I think, fair to say low trust uh, is where a lot of kind of the societal vibe is in a lot of ways, particularly with the... Uh, respect to politicians and non-transparent processes and all of that stuff. So it's extra incumbent upon governments to, to kind of recognize the field they're playing on and proactively allay those concerns, which was not done here. It's also, I think, incumbent on politicians not to throw too much fuel on the fire by saying things like this is going to give veto power to 5% of the population with impacts to over 95% of the public land, which is Kevin Falcon's statement about this, kind of in implying that, well, the natives are going to kick everyone off all of the public land like they and he even brought up the closure of the Joffrey Parks that happened last year. And I've seen some vile comments that didn't come from him relating to that in some of like corners of Reddit and things like that. And that's what uh, Cullen reflects on in his statement. And I saw Adam Olson bring it up a little bit too in some of his statements that and the First Nation Leadership Council uh, were all frustrated with the inflammatory rhetoric that goes beyond just like we want a process that recognizes rights that exist to well, they're going to veto everything. And it's the same kind of debate that happened a decade ago over UNDRIP. And we're fighting it again. And it's bad for that. So in the meantime, we're just going to not reform the Land Act. And we'll come back to it after the election when everyone's had some time to breathe and think. And maybe he, maybe a new minister can try again. Or maybe he'll get another crack at this. Honestly, he's better off just going back to federal politics. He was liked and well-respected there. And yeah, he is just not done well as a uh, provincial politician at all. I can see why they dropped this announcement in the middle of the week, though. Do, do, do. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, like what, one of the first uh, points on the board BC United has managed to get. Since they did their whole rebrand and new leader and everything, yeah, it's, it's one of it's one of yeah, the few own goals the NDP has taken since forming government. Uh, ah, yeah. though, like they a lot of those, they've been quick to uh, take the L and move off of it, like they did with the museum and uh, mm -hmm. a few other ones. They've uh, one thing those governments are good at it's uh, not fighting losing battles. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.